Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction, and I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. I sincerely appreciate each one of you, and when you leave your comments and or reviews, it means a great deal to me personally and to the success of this show. Never, ever give up hope. My guests have been phenomenal, every single one of them, and I hope that you have been listening and sharing because that's what it's all about to not only gain strength and inspiration and motivation from our guests but also to support them in their endeavors today with me i have petra monaco petra is a survivor she has endured abuse and extreme trauma which made her the strong woman she is today. And that is the case in most people who have had to overcome struggles in their lives, is from it we gain strength and we gain coping skills so that we can help others. She is also the author of two books, Betrayal, The Journey, Childhood Memories and the Adult Awakening is the first one. The second one, which I think she will probably share more intimately with us today, and that is called Lennon Steps, about her son. Now, through her blog posts and coaching, she can help each of you set boundaries in your life while making it feel like an act of loving yourself. It sounds like quite a feat for her to accomplish, and I'm sure that she will be able to share a lot of things to give us some insight into that. She has been labeled insightful, candid, and compassionate. Quite a combination. So we look forward to seeing this today and what she shares with us. And welcome, Petra. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm excited to hear what you have to share. And I know some of it may be, may be sad and may um, uh, trigger you know, some memories and other people who have experienced similar things. But we would like you to share initially your life in foster care. You were in foster care since you were two years old. And personally, I can't begin to imagine that, but please let us know what that was like. Yeah, so I don't actually remember the early years um, really well, just, you know, bits and pieces here and there. I think uh, my memories really started to hone in when I was six and joined a foster family that um, took me and my younger brother in. And at first, it was like everything I've wanted. I was rescued to be in this beautiful family. <laughs> um, 
but that ended up not being so beautiful um, for me. Um, and so, you know, I dealt with the abandonment by my own parents, trying to reconnect with them. I idolized my father for, gosh, ever thinking that one day he would get us back together and would just say, hey, you're coming back to live with me, <laughs> which was never the case. Um, and my mother was really more one of those that would break promises all the time. I'll come to see you and we'll do this and we'll do that, um, promising, you know, the world to us every time we went to see her or even say, oh, she's coming to visit and then never really follow through. So my heart was broken more than once, um, obviously. But then in foster care, um, I mean, I give foster parents credit for what they do, and not every family is like the way mine was. It was really relatively abusive to the point they wanted perfection. Okay. Um, and I would come home from school and find my closet and my desk belongings on the floor going, what is going on? And would be yelled at, um, you know, that I'm worthless and I won't be anything and I would end up like my parents. Um for several years, and it was devastating because it impacted my self-worth um, and how I viewed myself for the longest time. And they were the conversations, you have a problem, you need to talk about your problem. What is your problem? And at eight, I didn't oh. know what that meant. Oh, dear. I had no idea what that was about. I'm like, what do you mean I have a problem? I'm going to school, I have friends, life is great. <laughs> Minus the you know, abuse here and there. So I never really understood what the challenge was or what the problem was. Um, and so that went on for about six years before um, I became a teenager and teenagers experiment, they try things out, they explore different things. And I was hanging out with my friends and had a taste of alcohol. Um, and I'm from Germany. So the, the culture about alcohol is very different over there. Right. Yes. <laughs> I understand that totally. And so I put that in my diary um, because that was like my private space where I kept my thoughts and she wrote in it and I was like, Oh my, you can, I, that was like the end of the world. And I got really angry, um, at her and at the world and everything at myself and found myself removed from the foster family, um, and ended up in a new foster home, um, leaving my brother behind with that family because I was only 13 and he was 11. And now I was at this new place. And I didn't even know what to do with myself. Like, I didn't know how to fit in. And that's been one of my biggest struggles growing up is where do I fit in? Because if my parents didn't want me, who else is going to want me? If my foster family even didn't want me, who else is going to be able to love me? And so I got into alcohol and drugs and being promiscuous because that's where I believed I were, would find my place of fitting in with people. Um, and it's taken me... It's, until I was in my 20s to realize that's actually not the case. <laughs> um, and so I struggled through my adolescence and ended up short term following my parents' footsteps to where I was living on welfare. Um, I was a young mom at 17 to my firstborn uh, and just trying to figure out how to make it in this world. And just, well, my government's taking care of me. I don't have to work. And so I partied, partied and partied some more. Until I was 18 and I uprooted my entire life to move to the States, not even knowing the language. <laughs> but my, hus my son's father was here, um, who happened to be American GI. And so I followed him to the States and we ended up get getting married. 
but all through my childhood, that self-loathing, the lack of confidence, feeling rejected, um, set precedence for how I interacted every day. I knew I could have a better life. I just didn't know how to make that happen. Let's let's back up a little bit. You covered yeah. a lot of a lot of territory, <laughs> <laughs> but you gave us a nutshell, so that's good. So let's let's go back first of all to your first feelings of being rejected. Um, expound a little bit about what that was like. Like from your parents, obviously, you went through more than one foster home. Did you experience that rejection each time you went to a new home? What was your understanding, your earliest understanding as a child of what you were going through? Was it strictly um, that, I wasn't, that they didn't love you or, or what were you thinking? Well, I wasn't wanted. They didn't love me. and There must be something wrong with me that nobody wanted me. I think that uh, was my big thing. There must be something wrong with me. Um, and I couldn't figure out what that was. Okay. Now, fast forward that. Have you, as an adult now, years later, ever been able to help anybody who has gone through those same kind of rejections? Oh, absolutely. Um, I used to work as a therapist um, with family at risk and um, doing that work situation, I was able to help families reconnect. Um, really? Help them through the, yeah, really help them through the process. Um, that, And it took me until my 20s to learn that every person does the best they can. And sometimes they just can't be parents. And that's not my fault. And that's not the kids' fault. Um, it's not even the parents' fault because they have their own challenges or issues or blocks that's holding them back to be the kind of parent they may want it to be. They may want to be good parents. I have no doubt that my parents wanted to be good parents. They just didn't know how to make that happen. Did you ever have a connection with them later in life? I, I did. I know both my parents. I um, don't have a relationship with them now. Um, self-care strategies coming in with that. Um, my mother was very, um, very young in her age, <clears throat> wanted to party, wanted to fit in with my crowd of friends instead of having her own crowd of friends. Mm. And so I ended up parenting her instead of the other way around. My goodness. And I ended up living with my dad for a short while while I was pregnant with my firstborn. And we connected, but it never felt it never felt good to me. Like I was feeling very intimidated, um, very controlling. He's an alcoholic. And so that played a huge role um, in our relationship. And when I decided to move to the States, he decided that he doesn't want a relationship with me because I was betraying his country or something. Mm. <laughs> so he had to play, he had to place blame somewhere, I guess. Right. And you were the target. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you probably felt the target in other ways, uh, throughout that time as well. Sure. In my adolescent years, I've been raped twice. Um, in my entire lifetime and that felt like an attack on being a target because I was promiscuous and so I must have deserved that mm. um, you know and it was all about fitting in um, in that kind of regard so I, I never persecuted I never took action but I did a lot of self-healing around it um, I know that it's never my fault it doesn't matter how I dress <laughs> do you think that you would have um, uh, been different if you had understood this at a younger age or do you think you still would have rebelled in that respect? Um, I think that we all 
come into this world to learn certain lessons or experience certain things so that we can contribute and give back to the world. And it's up to us to make that choice to, you know, have that growth happening. So I think I would have experienced any of that anyway, because that was sort of um, my lessons to be learned. Okay. Very good answer. <laughs> Thanks. No, that, that's true. You, you've obviously thought that through. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, your book, Betrayal, The Journey, I'm assuming that's about your childhood. It is. It's just, um, it's a brief description about how I grew up, the abuse I endured, how I was looking for love in the wrong places, um, and, you know, betrayal by my parents because they didn't raise me, betrayal by my foster parents, even being betrayed by my ex-husband who, again, who was you know, doing his best for him. Um, and what he believed. And ultimately, I just protect myself because I wasn't being authentically me or even love myself enough to just be me. Now, when <clears throat> when you were working as a therapist, was it basically for people who had been going through the similar things or was it with parents of children who were going through? It was primarily with the kids, actually, and the parents were part of it. It was um, intensive in-home therapy and where I would go to the homes and work with them in their home. Really? Um, yeah. Um, so you so saw I, a lot of rejection and rebellion, I'm assuming. Absolutely. A lot of anger. <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> a lot of anger. <laughs> and how did you how did you suggest they cope with that? Like what what were some of your uh My strategies art usually or journaling? Um so we write about it or we talk about it. I engage with play with the kids to just play because sometimes they don't get to play. Um, You're talking about kids who are in uh, those kind of situations? Yeah. So we just play together and just kind of talk about during play uh, what's going on because they don't do the talk to talk, you know, face to face work very well. They need to be distracted. And it's a lot easier if you play a game of soccer with them to actually get them to talk. And then I'd have a conversation with the parents and see where they are. It's all compassionate work. And you probably yeah. loved it. I did. It was definitely one of the most rewarding work I've ever done. So now we're going to go back again to where you were talking about, um, I think you were a teenager at this point, and you had uh, now gone into, or you were rejected from your foster home at 13, was placed in another home, was trying to fit in, and began to rebel. Yeah. Was- what brought you around? What turned you around? Um so after several years of failing miserably at school and just life at that point, I had one social worker, um, just a, she's a short, very short woman. And I remember her because she wears shoes with heels. It doesn't matter. Rain boots, sneakers, everything had a wedge on it. And I love her because she looked at me one day and said, you're not stupid. There is no reason that you can't graduate high school. There's no reason you can't pro- follow your dreams. And that was the shift I needed, I think, at that time to actually graduate high school and do so very, very well. Um, like It's like I got my act together. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, and she was, and I, that's, yeah, she was definitely the driving force to um, help me shift my thinking that I can have a good life and I can be the kind of parent I need to be, um, you know, for my own kids and break the cycle that I grew up in. Did you ever get any kind of um, like approval from your parents when they saw you raising your children? Did you ever experience that at all or was that something you never received? 
No, that's not something I've ever received. Um, my dad actually doesn't even know that he's got, you know, three grandkids. Really? Um, <laughs> and my mom knows, but there was some stuff that happened after I moved to the States. She came to visit. We had a relatively okay relationship, um, but I just couldn't make that work to where I could feel good without um, being guilt-tripped or her not being able to take accountability, which is all I ever wanted from her is that, mm. hey, take, take responsibility that, yes, I didn't raise you. Yes, I screwed up. And I'm sorry. That's all I've ever wanted to hear. I didn't really want anything else from her. And she couldn't do it. And I don't think she still can. And that's okay. She is who she is. And I love her anyway. Well, you've learned to accept and you've learned to forgive. Yeah, exactly. And those are two things that no matter what happens in our lives, we have to learn because we have to choose, right? Right. You made the choice to accept them for who they were, wishing that you had had the same acceptance. And also um, that you were um, that you love them no matter what that you forgive them. I mean that that's that's to your credit. I'm sure you are. I'm sure you've patted yourself on the back. I hope you have anyway. <laughs> it's been a work in progress. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So now you have you're 17 years old. You have a child. Um, let's talk about that. Yeah. So. I love my kids, but I hated being pregnant. And I say that with all the love I have for them. Um, and it's not, I've never really envisioned myself as a mother, but it happened. And I knew I didn't want to be my parents. So I, right. beca I became an authoritarian parent. I actually resembled probably my foster parents really, really well in that <laughs> reference. <laughs> and I was very strict, but very angry still, though, because I still hadn't healed from my own um, trauma. And so... It was a challenge to parent him, um, but he's amazing now. So I'm like, I did a great job <laughs> um, because I grew with him. Um, and so I just found myself healing from my childhood by playing with him, by being a kid with him when I needed to be, but also learning how to hug. And I tell people I'm not a big hugger and it's a privacy thing. It's a energy thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I don't like people in my space very much. Um, without approval kind of thing. And so I had to learn how to hug him and I had to make it to where it was not like I should hug my kids, but like I get to hug my kid. Like Good. how Good. exciting is that, right? Good. That I get to hug him because I'm here and I'm present and I'm available to him. Um, and so, yeah, that was challenging at first. But after a couple of kids later, I changed my parenting style. <laughs> You know, that's very interesting what you said, though, about learning to hug, because it's true. I mean, especially with the rejection that you receive for so long, I think part of that is you don't want to hug because you don't want to be rejected. And yeah. I've seen that, you know, often, and it's sad. And sometimes you almost have to grab him and hold them, knowing that they don't want it. <laughs> right. Well, it's also vulnerability. If I hug you and allow you in my space, mm -hmm. um, I'm becoming vulnerable to you. Yes. Um, because yes. You're, you're now in my bubble, if you will. <laughs> and exactly. I'm very protective over that. So I speak very candidly about that I'm not a hugger, but there's quite a few people that I willingly actually take the initiative now to hug them because I love them and they're my friends or they've just, you know, made that space available to them. Does and it still some... bother you when you do that or are you able to, uh, to, does it feel good? No, it feels good now. And even now when I meet strangers and I just had that happen two weeks ago, um, 
I, I help out at a church and <laughs> this lady, I don't know who she is, well, I know who she is now, but she just hugged me and I'm like, oh, I'm handling this really well. This is great. <laughs> Instead of being repulsed by it, I'm just learning to receive more and being open more that it's just, it's just a connection with people. And I want to connect because I'm an introvert and I have to connect with people and that hugging is one way to do that. So becoming receiving and open to that has helped me. Did you change your parenting skills with um, with the different children, like from your first to your third? I did. I actually became relaxed with my second one, um, where I was like, hey, let's watch TV. Who cares about the Kool-Aid stain on the carpet? <laughs> um, to where I was, but connecting with them really was becoming more important. Um, and I always talk about it, and he dislikes it. He's my redhead, and he's very sensitive. Um, he's actually very similar in personality where he's very intuitive about things. And so I just developed a different way and realized I don't want to be a strict parent. I want mm. people to know we live here and that we have fun and we have a great time. Yes, we have rules. Yes, we have boundaries and there's things to learn and there's discipline, but it's all more appropriate instead of me trying to be controlling of every minute of the day. And how, how old are your children now? 23, 17, and 12. So you still have two at home? I do. I, the 17-year-old is a senior, so he'll be graduating pretty soon. Now, <laughs> considering what you went through as a teenager, does it make you afraid to watch your kids grow up? Do, are they boys? They're all boys. All boys. Does all it make boys. you afraid, or, or have you felt that you have given them enough of a foundation that you aren't concerned? I fully believe I've given them everything they need to spread their wings. Um, my message has always been to them, go after your dreams. Um, <laughs> and even though I was very academic driven for a long time, I even ch I changed that part where I'm like, you know what? If you don't want to go to college, you don't have to. It's okay. And my kids were like, what? Mm. You're not driving us to college? I'm like, no, if you don't want to go to college, don't. It's not for everybody. And you might decide that it's something for you later. And so my 17-year-old is a musician, and he would much rather tour the country on a motorcycle than go to college. And I'm like, you know what? Do it. Um, so, yeah, I do feel that I'm bringing them or have brought to them a good foundation. And even my oldest, he joined the military for a short while um, and was stationed down in North Carolina. And it did him great. And one of the things I see him is to stand up for himself. And no matter what anybody says, his opinion is his opinion. <laughs> and I always talk about, you know, if so you something believe in, you stand up for that. Well, it sounds like you're, you're trying to give them what they need, which you didn't have. Yeah, absolutely. Including the crazy hugs in the middle of the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Are they huggers? Are any of them huggers? My youngest is the uber hugger. Um, <laughs> Aww. I mean, I, my, we all hug relatively, and I they come up spontaneously with a hug. But my 12-year-old is the constant hugger. Every moment he gets that he's not playing video games or watching YouTube or I'm not doing anything, it's a hug attack, as he calls it. He probably knows you need it. <laughs> he has been my teacher in so many ways. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes. Amazing what we can learn from our from our kids, right? Yeah, he's definitely very he's um very wise for his age. Now what what which son is it that is Lennon? 
The youngest. The tutorial. youngest. Okay, yeah. so why don't you share with us, if you would, what happened all the way from being diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder, which I can't imagine what you had to go through, and also what happened and how you responded to that diagnosis and what's happening now. Yeah, so um, just quick story about that. When he was born, having been a mom, you know, I knew what healthy kids were like because I've had them. <laughs> but intuitively, I just knew something wasn't right. He was screaming and crying or vomiting, sick or sleeping. Like there was no rhyme or reason to keep him content or happy. One day he was, I called him the devil spawn for a while because there was just screaming and crying and I couldn't console him. And then there were days where I was like, oh, my God, look at him. He's sleeping. But he was sleeping too much. Um, and so when I moved to Charlottesville, um, I moved to a near big hospital. And he went to preschool. And the teacher called me two hours later and said, he's not woken up for two hours. Something is wrong. Oh, my you goodness. taking him to the emergency room. And so... And we've already had gazillion doctor's appointments up until then because I kept saying there's something wrong. And the doctor's like, oh, it's nothing. It's just this or that. Um, he's growing, right? Yeah. Or colic was one of the big things we've heard. <laughs> or he's dehydrated was another thing we've heard. Um, so we take him to the emergency room. He gets admitted. Yes, there's something wrong, but nobody can put their finger on it. Um, and he recovered to the point of being... Um, you know, balance where he's baseline is the word. And so we go home and two days later, same thing. And so we go to the hospital again and he gets admitted again. And the tests started crazy all night long um, in the emergency room for hours on end. Gets it and he ends up in the room and we get hooked up to an IV. And I'm just there going, oh, my God, maybe this is it. Maybe now we'll get an answer. And the doctor walks in with his little West Virginian accent <laughs> and says, he has urea cycle disorder. This is what it is. And it's just that he was missing an enzyme to process protein in his system, which built up as ammonia in his body. And ammonia is poison and toxic to you. Oh. And the outcome of an untreated urea cycle disorder is brain damage, coma, or death. And you Let said, it. oh, my goodness. <laughs> I what said, are you, you kidding say? me? Yes. Are you kidding me? And probably not as nice. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't imagine. <laughs> but at the same time, I felt this relief wash mm. over me um, where I was in disbelief, but relieved all at the same time. And it was a very weird place because now it was like, now we have something to work with. Now I know I'm not crazy in the head. I knew there was something wrong and I felt validated in my intuition as a mother and in my intuition as a person. <laughs> and I was like, all right, what does that mean? And I'm an action taker, go get a person. And so I really was like, what does that mean for his life? What will our life look like? And how, how do we go from here? And so Lennon was restricted from protein to about 18 grams a day. And if you ever pay attention to your food label, that's not a lot. <laughs> that's right. It's about, about three eggs, I think, maybe. Um, two, if you know instant only packages, it's about two or three of those. So it's really not 
a lot of protein at all. And so we had to get creative with food. Um, he was put on medication to manage the urea cycle disorder. The crazy part to me is that we couldn't even, there's 10 different versions of this disorder, but we couldn't find out which one it was because most of them are carried by the mother, but all my other boys were healthy. So that wasn't it. How do you spell that? Urea, U-R-E-A, cycle, C-Y-C-L-E, disorder. Okay. All right. So what was the next step? The next step was to get his diet under control, to get on a medication regimen that would work for him so where we wouldn't be in a hospital all the time and he could live, you know, a relatively normal life despite it. Um, it became um, strict about protein, strict about routine, stress or anything out of the schedule would set his ammonia off, if you will. Um, so we really had to be focused on um, meeting him where his needs were. And let me tell you, a kid on ammonia that's super high is not fun because they get super aggressive. Oh, my and goodness. And they don't know their own strength. Um, and I've been bitten by him on the shoulder in, a, in the hospital because his ammonia was just insane. And he was nonverbal. So he did suffer some brain damage because of it. And so he didn't have the words to tell me what, it, what was going on. And so aggression came his outlet. Um, hmm. And he was a runner. So he would run out the door just down the street um, so we had to lock the door. He would climb on the refrigerator for food, all kinds of crazy. How old, what, when was this happening and what's, what age? He was four when we found out. Okay. Um, and up to this point, you know, I had been trying to figure it out and he was nonverbal. He was getting special ed services from the school system with speech, um, and development, um, because he wasn't, you know, where he should be developmentally. Um, at the crazy part that happened, he got put on emergency kind of medication with IVs and everything to flush out the ammonia. We spent a week in the hospital. We went home. The next morning, he wakes up blind. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on? He's looking for me and looking for me in all the wrong places, calling my name. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm over here. Do you not see me? And he couldn't see me. So I called the doctor. I'm like, something's going on. He can't see me. He doesn't see anything. He's disoriented. And we went back to the hospital, MRIs, more tests to find out that um, because his system was flushing out all the ammonia that was spilled up, he began to have bubbles on his brain with fluid. So he had fluid pockets all over his brain, blocking his optic nerve, blocking everything that would help him see in other functions. Um, and so now we didn't know if that was temporary or permanent. And they couldn't tell us if it was temporary or permanent. So now we had the new adjustment shortly within a week of new diagnosis. And we went home. We got vision services in the school set in place. Um, vision services at home set in place. We even got a behavioral therapist come in because I couldn't function with his aggression. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to meet him to get his needs met. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I was losing my mind, if you will. <laughs> how are your other two boys handling this when this is going on? They were amazing. It's just like, okay, this is what's going on. There's nothing we can do. We're just going to keep going on. Um, and I would love to say it was all glitter and roses. It wasn't. Um, my, tenure, my oldest one started to struggle in school. 
um, getting caught up in the wrong crowd, mm-hmm. almost getting expelled from school, running away from home. Um, for a short while, he got found soon. <laughs> um, and my seven, now 17-year-old, he just got quiet. Um, you know, and I couldn't meet them. I, I had to so much. All my focus became about Lennon that I ended up neglecting them and almost abandoning them. Um, not by choice, obviously, but... You're only one person. Yeah. Um, but my boyfriend at the time sort of stepped up to the plate. Like, he took that part. He was connecting with the boys. He was managing the household. He cooked dinner. He was running the kids around um, and doing all those other things that I couldn't do because my focus was 100% on Lennon and keeping him alive. And where is he now in his uh, in development? Um, Lennon is now 12, but cognitively he's about 10. Um, his speech is still behind math forget it. <laughs> um, though he's picking up on it, he's, you know, he's making progress. He's in a special education program versus regular public school. And um, his language is emerging very nicely um, as far as where he is developmentally. So progress is small, but it's there. Unfortunately, his short-term memory got damaged. And so it takes him three or four times longer to retain or remember anything than any other kid, and that becomes frustrating after a while for some of us. <laughs> does he have friends? He does. Um, now that he's in a new school, he actually gets invited to birthday parties, um, oh. which is not something that we've experienced before. Mm. Um, because he spent so much time in a hospital. I think the first year after diagnosis was 35 times. Wow. Until the doctor said, there's only another cure type thing that we could try or they're feared the worst almost and that was a liver transplant and so we made the decision with a liver transplant um and the story just gets crazy from there (laughs) go ahead um we got listed within three weeks of um, being accepted in evaluations and november 18th what of 2008 he received his first transplant but as the world would have it, something went wrong with the main artery. And three, mm. days, three days later, he received a second liver transplant because oh it wasn't taking, it wasn't working, it was kaput. <laughs> so now that he's had the second one, his body was already experiencing so much trauma that his body didn't know what to do. And he ended up being on a breathing tube over the weekend. On Monday... The doctor's like, all right, we're going to take him off the breathing tube. We're going to get this kid back to normal, and we're going to bounce you out of here as soon as we can. I'm like, all right, this is awesome. Lennon quit breathing. Oh, my God. <laughs> and my heart, I was like, oh. no, 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 this is not happening. I just didn't go through this week to make this happen. My ex-husband and I were ushered into the lounge and said, you need to wait here. And I'm like, what? What? No, this is not, this is not good. And so we sat there. Um, encountered people that would pray for us um, who was going through some very similar tragic stories. And I'm like, wow, people, amazing. Um, they, they got him back to breathing, but he was now on a different machine um, that night. And I spent you know, all my time in the hospital with him. I very rarely left. And 
that night he was like, save me, mommy, save me, because he was struggling so hard to breathe. And I was like, what is going on? The machine didn't do what it was supposed to do. And he ended up back on a breathing tube the next day. And he spent weeks on that machine um, because his body just could not handle the fluid buildup, the infections that started to happen. And he was just not ready to um, recover. And when he did make progress, we ended up calling them Lennon steps instead of baby steps because we realized that Lennon will recover when he's ready on Mm. his own terms. And one day the doctor said, we're doing everything we can to support him, but it's really up to him and the higher power. And I looked at him saying, that's not good enough. (laughs) But my ex-husband and I really had to dig into hope um, at that point because that's all we had left. We didn't have anything else to give except to believe that he would recover from that. And in March, he made it home (laughs) for the first time after being on a breathing tube and healing and recovering, dealing with withdrawals and infection after infection. He was how old at this point again? He was then five. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, So he made it home in March, um, finally, but he wasn't Lennon. You know what I mean? Like he was depressed and sad. Um, His hair started to fall out and he was still pretty ill. We We were on a feeding tube because he couldn't eat or wouldn't eat might be the proper thing. He didn't speak. Um, And so he just kind of existed at that point. And I I, went, um, go ahead. I was just going to say, and you said you weren't a mother. You didn't have a mother's heart (laughs) initially. (laughs) Yeah. You have to rethink Uh, that one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm meant to be a mom to those kids. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And I was, Going through school during that time, um, pushing myself to college, um, and I had to dig deep to just even show up for that, but I had this belief that I was going to be a counselor and help people, and just help people in general, and I had to leave for residency, um, and so we got everything set up. We got a nurse to come to the house. My boyfriend at the time was all prepared. I left. I came back seven days later, and there was blood in his stool and just not in the right places. And I'm like, what is going on now? Back to the hospital. And he had varices on his esophagus that they couldn't bind. And we didn't know whether he was going to bleed to death or not. So we were in the PICU um, for a couple of days and he ended up back on a breathing tube for two, about two months before he was ready again to come off of that. Um, and come home and so we adapted to that kind of a life feeding tube home nurse um, IV meds regular meds from transplant um, and just pushing along getting up doing our going to our work doing our jobs studying for school trying to ever get a break um I've had people kick me out of the hospital just go home and take a shower okay to go home and say, spend time with your kids, go do something fun and distract yourself. Um, I literally had a nurse tell me, do not come back for the next 24 hours. You need to be at home. Um, any breaks yet. Yeah, and that's was, I just quit fighting when they were pushing me out the door. I just quit fighting. I said, all right, I'll go home. You had to whole, for your own sanity. To, yes. Yeah. Like I couldn't see it, but other people saw it. Um, and my ex-husband showed up 
periodically when he could. Um, he doesn't live nearby, so that was always a challenge. Um, and my boyfriend at the time would spend nights there. I would be at home during the day. He would spend the night or vice versa, however we could make it work so that Lennon wouldn't be left alone. But I could, you know, see that the kids, um, maybe get some schoolwork done <laughs> or go to work because I still what, had a job. What were you, oh my goodness, what <laughs> were you working at and what were you studying in school? So I was working at in a local organization that helps uh, adults with disabilities to be functioning human beings in their own home. And I studied to be a counselor, so I was working on my master's degree in mental health. Amazing. You're amazing. <laughs> um, so at what age was there a turnaround for him? Um, or that are you still actually, struggling? Oh, we were still struggling. Um, but we were adjusting because we now had a nurse that would come regular to the home that would take off some of the... Um, pressure of us and I could go about my business you know working and studying and what have you January 2009 um, they did lab work and his ammonia came back elevated and I'm like what do you mean <laughs> what do you mean it's elevated it shouldn't be elevated um, and he was diagnosed with chronic liver disease with um, not really sure how long the expectancy was for for that liver at that point and the doctor made the recommendation for us to be evaluated by an outside of out of state hospital to see if a third liver would be oh. necessary. And we were evaluated during that summer and we were listed in January 2011. He received his third liver transplant after a 50-50 chance of survival with an 18-hour surgery. Oh my goodness, girl. <laughs> and um, he was wheeled into the into his room in the PICU, and he bounced back quicker than I have ever seen. Like, we've not experienced that. I'm like, this is not real. What do you mean he's already doing this? What do you mean he's doing that? <laughs> like, what is happening? This is amazing. And we had to stay there for two months just because for care. And it wasn't all, like, smooth sailing. He did receive an infection. But we were able to go home in March with an IV and medication and a nurse set up. And he bounced back. All of a sudden, there was life in this kid. Life I've never seen before. And I was like, this is awesome. And we started finding our new normal. <laughs> and things started to improve. And things started to get better. He was smiling. His hair started growing. Back. He started growing. He went to school. Um, and he was doing kid things. He was playing video games. He was playing with toys. He was not initially running around, but running around. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and so it was just amazing to see him flourish. Um, and I still was hesitant, still reserved, still very guarded about everything that I was seeing because I was just waiting for that setback. Because that's, you know, what we've experienced. But now that he's 12... And it's been three years, almost four. Um, he's amazing. He literally is life. He never wakes up crumpy. He never gets angry. And if even he does, it doesn't last long. He dances, he sings, and he wakes up singing. <laughs> is he blind or can he see? He can see. His vision actually came back after another big burst of ammonia. Um, and so his vision came back gradually. He does need glasses, but he can see, um, he does require a hearing aid. But other than that, he's a fully functioning 12-year-old boy. 
who keeps me on my toes. <laughs> what an incredible story. What an incredible story. No wonder you are strong and can share that strength with people who are going through, you know, kids with cancer or so many of the rare disorders that children have today. I'm sure that you have given much of yourself to those people. Have you ever done anything in that regard as far as like, you know, in in the hospital or any type of those situations? I haven't, but it's one of my goals to um, create a nonprofit that actually helps parents during those times. Mm. Um, not that I'm against the kids, that, <laughs> but I feel there's already so much done for, for the kids. They get blankets and gifts and Good toys point. Yes. that the parents, I feel, are often neglected in the process. And so just something for self-care, little shampoos, you know. Just some little and a notebooks. break probably too, where somebody okay. can come in and give them a break. Yeah. yeah, just something to make them feel good that they're being thought about um, during that time. Um, that's my goal is to make that happen and bring that to the community. That sounds wonderful. Now your books, I'm assuming that they are both written as a memoir. There are. Okay, and the first, tell us about them. So betrayal. The journey, childhood memories, is really a timeline of my upbringing in foster care to um, adulthood and my awakening, if you will. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's time to change your life. You're, only, you're the only one that can do it. Um, and Lennon's Steps is about the undiagnosis, the first four years of his life, and then it becomes a journal-type um, book where I have taken a blog and taken the important pieces and put it into the book to um, share his journey. And the purpose of is to for self-help for people going through it or what is the what is your motive? Yeah, definitely self-help, um, but ultimately also that we're not alone in our journey. Um, when we share our stories, um, we connect with other people and they go like, oh, I connect with that. I can relate and I'm not alone. And I think that was the biggest thing for me is to know that I'm not alone in being a foster kid. There's a gazillion other foster kids in this world. Mm. Um, and I'm not alone as a special needs mom. There's other special needs mom out there. And there's other special needs mom with this disorder. And so I'm not alone in this world. And we can help each other, inspire each other, support each other, and motivate each other in the process. Now, as rare as this disorder is, have you connected with anybody else who has experienced it? I do. There's actually a few people on Facebook um, a small group, and it's a global type group um, where we connect and support each other as we're going through these st various stages um, of this urea cycle disorder. And I've created some great bonds with people. I can only imagine. Yes. And your two older boys, have they been able to um, support you with your with Lennon now and, and, and things are good as far as the relationship between the boys? Because I'm sure there had to be some tremendous... Uh, struggles in that area oh they've been absolutely amazing and it's amazing that too the only thing I experience now is typical sibling behavior being where the 12 year old annoys the 17 year old mm -hmm. okay but it's it's normal stuff it's not like which is nice <laughs> yeah it's awesome to have this normal type of stuff in my world <laughs> and then even in their world and if I need the 23 year old to come over because I have an engagement to attend and I can't be at home He'll come over, 
um, the 17 year old can manage to, but because he's still 17, I, you know, I limit the time that I mm-hmm. leave him in charge, <laughs> but no, the relationship and foundation of our family is definitely, we all have each other's backs no matter what. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. And that's what family's all about. Exactly. Now tell me what a self-care strategist is. You call yourself a self-care <laughs> strategist. Yeah, a self-care strategist, because I struggle with loving myself um, and setting my own boundaries and became codependent through the process, um, I had to learn all those things. Um, And so I can help setting boundaries, um, figure out what is a boundary, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. Um, We all have those relationships that make us feel icky, if you will. I don't know if icky is the right word, but... (laughs) They make us uncomfortable or that feels heavy or we feel overwhelmed and obligated. Um, but when we are able to impose self-bound strategies, then we can do the things that feel good and we learn how to say no when we need to say no. And what about um, you made a uh, on your website, you said that you can help people who crave freedom. What yeah. do you mean by that? So craving freedom is really just being you. Um, It's stepping into your own power to not figure out how to fit in. Um, I don't fit in anywhere, and I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm a multi-passionate individual. Um, And so honoring who you are, that's your freedom, because then you get to live your life the way you want to. You get the kind of job that you want, the kind of business that you want, the kind of relationships that you want, take vacations that you want, and it's really about freedom for you. You know, you hit on something there that I think uh, is is rarely addressed, and that is um, when you said about craving freedom specifically for whatever area you want it in. Yeah. So expound a little bit more on that. Um, freedom is different for everybody. For some, it's just, you know, financial freedom, example. They want okay. to feel secure in that, and they don't want to have to worry about where they pay their bill or where that's money coming from. So that's their freedom. For me, it's adventure and being able to take road trips. <laughs> I so love- what, what do you do then to help people uh, realize this? We have conversations. Okay. Um, I so don't it's really strictly like it- a counseling situation, a one-on-one or groups? Not counseling. It's one-on-one coaching, just having a conversation about how you can make that happen in your world. And you've been there. Yeah, I've been there. And do you do this on online or? I do. It's either via telephone if they're local in the U.S. or it's via Skype if they're internationally somewhere else. Um, so I have a global business where um, literally talk to people virtually anywhere. So it's mostly a, it's coaching as opposed to doing some kind of seminars or something like that. Correct. Okay. Okay, so we will have all that information available for your contact information uh, on your post, absolutely, along with your story. Is there any, what's your call to action to uh, the audience today? Um, It's your mindset. Um, Work on your mindset is really what I found is the key um, to improve your life and to have hope and to be able to create what it is you want to create Um, When we start tackling self-doubt and see that it's just outside noise and maybe noise from your childhood that other people told you and it's not real, then you can take that, overcome that. And you certainly can speak to that. Absolutely. (laughs) So 
Sophie, you're a strong lady. Yes. And that strength is something that you never would have had, like we said earlier in the broadcast. You never would have had without having to endure this. I'm assuming as well, it's a big assumption, that there are no regrets. None. I don't live a life with regrets. (laughs) I knew that just from listening to you. And along with that, it's attitude, which we always talk about, because attitude will get you through. I can tell by the tone of your voice, laughter is something that gets you through. Oh, absolutely. Forgiveness Um, has been huge in your life. Yes. There, you know, you have so much to offer, and I hope that you will continue to tap into all of these areas because just listening to you, as we said initially, you are compassionate and passionate, candid and insightful. Yes. And that's a terrific label and a heavy label to carry. So I applaud you. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, what are your goals? My goals is to help women transform their lives (laughs) so they can have their freedom and create what it is they want in their life Um, and be financially free for myself so I can take those road trips that I want to take. I want to see the world. (laughs) (laughs) Have your kids been to Germany with you? They haven't. There hasn't been in the past financially a possibility, but I'm making it a go. (laughs) Absolutely. That'll be one exciting day when it happens. Yes. Well, Petra, we... We just applaud you, we encourage you, we uplift you, and we thank you for what not only what you shared, but we want to stay in touch. And yeah. six months, a year from now, let's talk again. Let's see what else has happened, where you have progressed, how your children are doing, and uh, the and maybe there's an, is there another book in you? There is. I'm writing it currently. And that is another memoir or self-help or both? It's a self-help. Okay. Well, we will look forward to that as well. And is that, what's that about? In what area? Um, Dreaming, believing, and taking action. Dreaming, believing, and taking action. All three are necessary. Yes. Very good. On that note, we will say goodbye unless there's anything else you want to add. No. Okay. Thank you again, Petra, and we look forward to talking to you again, and it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.